Erin Elise Burns created the exhibition to take the shape of the container in 2019 for the Jack Straw New Media Gallery. So when you walk in the gallery at Jack Straw, it's a pretty dark space. And I think the thing that viewers are confronted with immediately is two large-scale video projections. And this is a two-channel video that's positioned in the gallery in the corner. And the projections themselves are about... I don't know, 13 feet, 11 feet wide. So they're pretty immersive in the space and they meet together. And then you're immersed in the sound. And the sound is a wide variety of sources and there's a channel of sound for the left video and there's a channel of sound for the right video, but they're played simultaneously, separated spatially in the gallery, and they overlap. So there's this kind of interesting conversation between two images happening simultaneously and two soundtracks happening simultaneously. In the right channel of the video, the imagery focuses on kind of communal experience or large groups of people. So there's a long sequence of a large group of cloaked figures that are in sitting meditation together. And that sound is a kind of combination of the way that sound feels in silent meditation to me and how like just the most subtle <laughs> can feel like a violent exclamation point if you've spent days in silence. And the fact that if I, I do 10-day um, silent meditation retreats once a year, and that's often a large group of people sitting in silence together. So, like, what is the collective body of that experience? Like, what's the kind of sort of knowing that you can have physically when your eyes are closed um, in this practice, like, in a group? And then the left-hand channel, the left side of the video, focuses more on individual experiences. And those are looking at um, like mental imagery that I've become kind of fixated on, either through meditation or images that got stuck in my head. Images related to like envisioning surreal kinds of death or childhood fantasies, kind of symbols of meditation or repetition. And on the left-hand side of the gallery, there is a large sculpture, which a lot of people seem to sit next to the sculpture to watch the video. <laughs> um, and the sculpture is about five foot seven, which is close to my height, and is made of five miles of ribbon, which was a kind of performance relic from a piece called Gather. But that's kind of positioned as a chair, a throne, a body, and it's on one wall, so it kind of acts as a spatial counterpoint to what's happening in the two-channel video. And then on the back wall of the gallery, there are two series that are hung together almost as one piece. Um, there's a series of 10 small, like discrete photographic images and a series of 10 small handmade boxes that contain text pieces within. And they're hung in proximity to each other to kind of create a relationship between image and object. 
I sat down with Erin in the Jack Straw Studios to talk about how she conceived and created this exhibition, from recreating presidential morning stationery by hand to producing Foley sound effects in the studio at Jack Straw. I noticed with those boxes that are there on the wall, they look really sort of elegantly and purposefully crafted. And on the top of the box, there's a little notch, which is very tempting (laughs) as a person experiencing (laughs) the gallery work to see if that notch helps one to lift the top off of the box. What do you intend for the audience or the person who's experiencing the piece to do? To observe that <laughs> respectfully. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that your your observation about the fact that there's an invitation to touch, and then if you spend some more time with a the display, there's also the denial of touch, right? Like if you look at it and you think it through, you can't remove that lid. There's the divot there, but the way that a lid works is you can't slide it out because of the design. So I'm interested in that kind of process of negotiation, like the desire for touch and then the kind of withdrawal from it and the fact that it's a handmade object that suggests handheld, but that is on the wall in a way that goes against that. And if people read the gallery sheet, there's a very small kind of liner note that only the inquisitive, the really curious, have taken advantage of, which is that you can request a viewing of the boxes. So Jack Straw's staff or like myself during the opening, I have a pair of black silk gloves for me and a pair of black silk gloves for a viewer and we put them on take the box off the wall and I open it for them and present them the insides the gloves that you or a staff member would put on are those gloves meant to preserve the integrity of the objects do they themselves become a part of the art in terms of what they do visually Yeah, I mean, I think every detail is important, right? So I deliberately chose black silk gloves, which are very similar to the black satin ribbon, which is very similar to the black piping around the image, which is very similar to the way that the text objects inside the box look. The boxes are lined with black velvet or felt. Um, So all of that aesthetic choice is, is cohesive and intentional. And I think the kind of performance of putting on those gloves like enters you into the space of that work in a way that's different if I gave you white museum gloves. And so that aesthetic purpose is deliberate, but then also there's the practical side of keeping one's fingers off of something that's handmade and one of a kind. So it kind of functions as a conceptual, archival (laughs) act. What about the wax seals that are also in close proximity to those boxes and those photographs? The seals themselves were hand-designed by me. Um, I created a die that's a kind of stamp that then you can um, pour black wax and stamp the stamp within it. And so that seal is a family crest of my mother's maiden name, which is Mansky. The fact that it's black wax comes back to kind of the language or iconography of mourning and kind of thinking of all of these different ways that we've used that color with a ribbon. Um, This black piping that's used in those pieces is a reference to mourning stationery from the Victorian era. 
the boxes kind of double as an archival storage. They're yellow cedar, so it's an archival wood. They're lined with, again, like black felt on the inside, which is a kind of archival process. And then each piece has an individual handmade piece of stationery. And that stationery was designed after White House, um, actually Kennedy White House morning stationery, a piece of stationery that I inherited from my mom. And so I used the Kennedy White House stationery as a kind of um, design that I based the handmade envelopes and text pieces off of. But that design itself goes back to the Victorian era. And that black piping that goes around a letter or goes around an envelope is an aesthetic language that goes back to Victorian practices. So it was interesting for me to kind of trace that research and to sort of see it in this nostalgic moment because I shared a lot with my mom around the sort of glamour and legacy of the Kennedys when we were kids. And so using that design and getting really captivated with what that black line meant is something that you see throughout the work, both as the kind of black line of five miles of ribbon and the black line around the photographs, the black line around the stationery and even the black stamp. And I think an investigation of that sprung out of like asking what do secular individuals who maybe don't have religion or tradition or a particular cultural practice, like what do they do in grief? Like how do we step into something that can be supportive and to kind of talk about that etiquette of support in a way that's contemporary when in the past we might have had more distinct cultural practices for those things? at the show like it's a culmination of a few different projects and that um, was a choice to kind of frame ideas of loss grief and for me um, thinking about meditation as a vehicle to process some of those things and also to use like sound and the mind's perception as a way to understand time and loss and so I would say even though there's a bunch of different kind of works in the exhibition, they're all tied together around those themes in different ways. Did all of those different works within this show, did they all start sort of bubbling up or did you begin creating each of them at the same time or was it a long range of time? Um, the exhibition brings together two years worth of work. Um, my process is not linear. You know, time isn't linear. So sometimes there was overlap or separation in terms of what the working process was, but the videos and the sound are the most recent that were made in like the last six months or so as part of this residency. And then the gather performance and the two series on the wall were prior to that. And the catalyst for this work was around my mother's death, which was two years ago as well. So really looking at the experience of losing her and using that experience as a way to start to reflect on these bigger conversations about the life cycle, about the cycle of the body, the cycle of grief, the cycle of the mind.
because you're also a practicing artist as well as someone who teaches art, I'm really interested to know how do those two parts of your life as an artist intersect? As an arts educator, it can be a little difficult to know, like, when the work stops. I mean, like, there's just a lot of blending back and forth. Um, and I think that in best-case scenarios, that's a really generative, inspiring um kind of buoying experience. And then sometimes, you know, you wish the work would end and that you had a nine to five job that you didn't think about afterwards, right? Um, and so there's both ends of those spectrums, but I do think that constantly being dedicated to the language of art making makes my work better. And I think having lived experiences as an artist in exhibition and podcasts and talks and all of the things that a professional practicing artist does makes me a more compelling teacher to my students um, because the things that I'm grappling with in my studio or trying to figure out in my work are of value to them. And there's that exchange of being able to um, learn from each other. And so that kind of conversation of like how you can learn from each other is an ongoing source of inspiration. The majority of the sound for the video installation was made in the studio here. And that isn't something that was a part of my practice previously. Um, sound and video have always been things I've, I've worked on, but to work in a recording studio and to create Foley or to create sound in the studio and pair it with an image was something that was really new to me. Um, previously, I would record um, with field recorders in the environment or use natural sound, um, but to kind of like make the sound feel realer than real or to kind of experience it differently um, was revelatory and a, and a really amazing learning experience. So I would say that that was probably the biggest influence Jack Straw had on the um, on the exhibition. Working in large-scale video installation and working in multi-channel video installations is something I've been doing for a while, but the way the sound factored in was a real um, breakthrough. <laughs> Can you take us through maybe some of that recording process and what that was like for you? There's a whole array of pieces I could talk about, but when I think of maybe two distinct experiences that can represent how the sound was made, there's two sequences. One is in the left channel that is a 100-gallon um, stock tank, you know, a tank that you would water your cattle with. And inside that, I have placed my body and filled the tank with about 80 gallons of blue-colored water. And that sequence is made with still photographs that are then animated to look like video. So what you don't see is where the water's coming from. You don't see the source. You just watch the filling up. And this was a mental image that I got stuck in my head during my first 10-day silent meditation retreat. And it was kind of a vision of my own death. It was um, inspired by Eve Klein's International Blue. It was inspired by a kind of, I mean, there were so many things going on and I just had this embryonic sort of bath image in my head. That percolated for maybe two years um, before I decided to, to try to make the thing. And during that process, I mean, it is a performance, right? Like I'm holding my breath in blue paint, trying to figure out how to be physically comfortable in a very physically discomforting experience. And something that that kind of process of performing that image for the camera led to was a really crazy kind of internal sound. Like when you're inside what felt kind of like a well, 
you know, this giant resonant metal tank and underwater and kind of submerged for long periods of time, the sound was like resonating internally and gave me this kind of like embryonic calm, but was also very, um, I had to examine my anxiety and to reduce one's anxiety and that experience made it comfortable, right? To be comfortable kind of breathing underwater face up. So this became an interesting kind of metaphor for thinking about meditation and patterns of thought and calm. And I was really struck with the desire to try to create a sound score that could get at that kind of internal drone that was happening underwater. So through a lot of different experimentation in the studio, from bringing in resonant containers like a bunt cake pan from the 50s and filling it with water, to literally bringing the 100-gallon tank into the studio and filling it and recording it. And what we ended up doing was bringing a stethoscope into the studio and then running that to a shotgun mic and then submerging the stethoscope in the tank of water and making recordings there. And so that particular channel had the stethoscope in the tank, contact mics on the tank resonating so that you could get the kind of vibrations of the sound. And so I took those channels and edited them together also with a stethoscope recording I made of my heartbeat, which is really low in the mix, but if you were listening to it with headphones or paying very close attention, you would start to hear a heartbeat there. And that was from putting the stethoscope on my throat and recording that. And then there's also a layer of breath as well that kind of gets faster and slower that's kind of permeated in that track. And the other one I wanted to talk about was the meditation channel on the right side with the group of nine figures that are cloaked and seated. And that was a whole, um, like, I don't know how many layers of sound, but of a lot of close mic'd kind of bodily sounds. So working with an engineer and feeling comfortable, like recording my stomach gurgling, recording me swallowing, like recording all of the things you normally would edit out and trying to get as clear a sound quality of (laughs) <laughs> and swallowing and sneezing and sniffling and whispering. And Daniel Gunther, who was the sound engineer I was paired with for the residency, he and I did one take where we close mic'd ourselves and breathed together for 15 minutes. And we had our headphones on and just kind of like sat in the experience of our bodies. And that was a a wild and interesting experience to share with someone (laughs) and felt very much like using the studio as a way to kind of think about the breath, which is so central to meditation and to think about that kind of like internal uh, soundscape. Yeah, and the rest of the sound, you know, it was all kind of foley, you know, so like there's a lot of textural sound of like hair brushing. That's me brushing a wig um, and syncing it perfectly to the image and learning how to do that, a sequence of walking. 
Those are my bare feet on a yoga mat edited to sound appropriate for the scene. You know, I mean, so there were just a lot of interesting ways of trying to take what was realistic to the sound, but again, exaggerate it in the studio or make it feel realer than real. Do you have any sense of how those revelations that you had about working with the sound and working here in the recording studio will inform your work? I mean, it's unfortunate that the residency is over. <laughs> I'm like, I would love to just always be working in the studio, right? Um, so I think there's a little bit of, like, where will this process figure in, in, in my work, right? Like, does it mean that I will continue to work with sound engineers or does it mean that I will strive to make the quality of my sound um, reflect what I've learned in this experience? Probably the latter. Having worked with and produced really immersive and physical sound will most likely make me want to continue to develop that and to see how I can push it further. Aaron Elise Burns' exhibition, To Take the Shape of the Container, was created through the Jack Straw New Media Gallery Residency Program. Podcast interviewer is Alyssa Keene. Producers are Levi Fuller and Joel Maddox. Engineer is Joel Maddox. Jack Straw Executive Director is Joan Rabinowitz. The Jack Straw Artist Residency Programs are made possible with support from the Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, Washington State Arts Commission, National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to our media sponsor, KUOW. To learn more about our arts programs and hear more podcasts, visit us at jackstraw.org.